0: Chapter 10 Conclusion From Invasion to Insurgency 2002 to 2003 of The US Army in the Iraq War Volume 1 by US Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Read by Adam Cable Chapter 10 Conclusion From Invasion to Insurgency Page 247 Military operations during the March and April 2003 invasion of Iraq resulted in 172 coalition fatalities, almost 600 wounded, and nearly 5,000 Iraqi combatant deaths. The coalition military sustained an additional 408 killed and 2,000 wounded, detained over 10,000 suspected insurgents, and killed an additional 600 insurgents between the declared end of major combat operations on May 1st and the end of 2003. When combined with the scope and requirements of post-combat operations, the casualty numbers highlighted that Phase 4 and not Phase 3 was the decisive phase of military operations in Iraq, but that the planning time resources and personnel allocated for phase 3 far exceeded those for phase 4 the coalition provisional authority or cpa and combined joint task force 7 or cjtf7 were likewise poor substitutes for the capabilities of the collapsed iraqi state the resultant void in state power during the summer of 2003 was eventually occupied by sunni resistance organizations islamic terrorists shia militias the iranian regime and Kurdish factions, all vying for autonomy and rule in Iraq, circumstances that effectively ceded the initiative from the coalition military forces to Iraq's various insurgent groups for years to come. As 2003 came to a close, the U.S. military found itself enmeshed in a long-term occupation of Iraq it had not expected for a variety of reasons then-president george w bush's november 2001 order to plan military operations to forcibly remove saddam hussein from power and eliminate his weapons of mass destruction or wmd program surprised military leaders who were accustomed to more limited objectives the new plans that u.s central command or centcom and its subordinate units developed for iraq were emblematic of 1990s era military doctrine and practice throughout the 1990s The combat training centers and simulations that Army units used to replicate and prepare for maneuver operations employed Cold War-era scenarios that pitted Army units against a peer or near-peer Soviet-style military formations and validated the use of deep aviation attacks as core-shaping operations. Those scenarios also taught maneuver units to avoid getting bogged down in Grozny-like urban combat and minimized the importance of any stability or peacekeeping activities that might take place at the conclusion of major combat. The army's institutional bias in favor of Phase 3, its distaste for stability and support operations, and its expectations based on successful operations in Afghanistan led its leaders to focus on the maneuver operations that would depose the Iraq regime and to give little consideration to the aftermath. The war plan that the invasion force executed in March 2003 focused on defeating Iraq's Republican Guard, putting military pressure on Baghdad until the regime collapsed from within, and transitioning the administration of the country to the two-months-old Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, or ORHA, and an expatriate-led Iraqi interim government. The plans largely discounted Saddam Hussein's extensive paramilitary apparatus, tribal patronage system, and intra-Iraqi dynamics, all of which would play crucial roles in the ensuing instability and insurgency. The military intelligence community's similar emphasis on adversaries' conventional military forces resulted in an overfocus on Iraq's Republican Guard and regular army, and a discounting of the paramilitary forces that became the Ba'athist regime's de facto main effort by the time of the invasion. U.S. intelligence also only touched the surface of Iraq's complex social dynamics, resulting in flawed assessments about Iraqi military capabilities and inaccurate assumptions about how the Iraqi communities, tribes, and security apparatus would respond to the removal of the Ba'ath regime. The coalition's analytical bias toward a familiar, hierarchical, Soviet-style enemy persisted well into the months following the Iraqi regime's collapse, inhibiting a more fundamental understanding of Iraq's politics and human terrain. At the same time, CENTCOM, Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, and Fifth Corps, consumed by the requirements of planning for the invasion and working under the assumption that the Iraqi army would be available to help secure and stabilize post-regime Iraq, did not prepare realistic plans for securing the country with their comparatively small ground force footprint. Because of these factors, the invasion itself was an operational success, but not a strategic one. The presence of the Fedayeen and other paramilitary forces in southern Iraq surprised the coalition military, who had expected to fight conventional Iraqi forces as they advanced on Baghdad. After some tactical setbacks negating the use of deep aviation attacks as core-shaping operations and highlighting the need to secure the coalition's vulnerable lines of communications, CFLCC pressed forward. On April 9th, just under three weeks from the beginning of the invasion, CFLCC determined that any organized resistance in Baghdad had disappeared along with Saddam and his regime. The war, however, was far from over. Much of the country, including Anbar and Iraq's northern provinces, remained unsecured because the special operations forces who had made territorial advances in those areas lacked the capacity to hold that territory alone. Furthermore, since the regime had collapsed far sooner than any of the military plans had envisioned, organizations designated to manage the transition between major combat operations and Phase 4 were still in the process of organizing themselves and formulating their plans. Even the effort to locate the Iraqi regime's WMD, the very casus belli for the U.S.-led coalition, was treated almost as an afterthought, tasked to a U.S. Army organization that was unequipped to accomplish the mission and had to be replaced by the hastily formed Ad Hoc Iraq Survey Group. What the coalition had intended to be a surgical regime change quickly deteriorated into the general collapse of the Iraqi state, creating a power vacuum and a breakdown of law and order. In the absence of any authority that could govern or maintain order, Iraqis looted the public infrastructure and carried out reprisal attacks against their former Ba'athist masters. CFLCC ground units did not anticipate these developments and spent weeks reacting to contact instead of preparing an orderly changeover to a transitional civil authority. Although the coalition military eventually regained some measure of control in many urban areas, the damage was done. Iraqis, who had expected the United States to re-establish order quickly and improve standards of life, became disillusioned as the essentials of the Iraqi state evaporated and Iraq's social order began to break down. In the midst of this turmoil, Lieutenant Generals David McKiernan and William Wallace hewed out unit boundaries that made operational sense but were often misaligned with Iraq's physical and human terrain. The new unit boundaries crossed mountain ranges, rivers, tribal lines, and smuggling routes, creating seams that later would be exploited by the Sunni resistance organizations and Shia militias that emerged in the summer of 2003. When it became apparent that the invasion forces would not have Iraqi military and police forces at their disposal to restore order, McKiernan and Wallace made a deliberate decision to make Anbar and Iraq's southern provinces, which appeared comparatively peaceful in the turbulent weeks following regime collapse, economy of force missions. After the Marines and the 3rd Infantry Division redeployed from Iraq in the summer of 2003, these two critical regions were left to a small U.S. Army contingent and a polyglot multinational force, respectively, neither of which had sufficient combat power to secure the territory and contain the unrest there. In addition to the departure of the 3rd Infantry Division and 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, the summer of 2003 also saw the replacement of some of the more seasoned forces in Iraq with people who had far less experience with the country. At the policy level, Lt. Gen. Retired J. Garner's ORHA was summarily replaced by the even less resourced CPA under Ambassador L. Paul Bremer. At Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld's insistence, the CFLCC that had conducted the invasion returned to Kuwait, leaving the tactical 5th Corps headquarters to transform overnight into a theater command responsible for the entire country and led by the Army's most junior Lt. Gen. At the same time, institutionally driven changes of command and mandatory military moves left some units like the 1st Armored Division with entirely new leadership. When superimposed on the hastily assembled new Iraqi Governing Council, this turnover of key personnel and organizations effectively put a combination of novices and opportunists in charge of Iraq, with neither the expertise nor the resources needed to replace the collapsed Iraqi state. Meanwhile, the CPA, CENTCOM and CJTF-7 began moving forward with a new campaign to internationalize the Iraq effort and stand up new Iraqi security forces, with the goal of allowing the United States to reduce its footprint in Iraq dramatically to fewer than 30,000 troops by the end of 2004. This ambitious plan was thwarted by a number of factors. While it was clear that CJTF-7 needed more boots on the ground to accomplish all of its missions, Rumsfeld and the Institutional Army were reluctant to provide them, given their perception that the war in Iraq was effectively over as of May 1, 2003. Much of the Institutional Army also failed to recognize the urgency of the situation in Iraq and was eager for its units to redeploy, continue with the Army's transformation program, and be available for other contingency operations. Sources of additional personnel, too, were scarce as U.S. Army reserve tours came to a close, and the time constraints associated with reserve and National Guard tour lengths began to take their toll on the total force. The coalition's failure to understand the environment in Iraq had far-reaching consequences that likewise held CENTCOM's ambitious stabilization campaign goals in check. CPA Orders 1 and 2 thwarted stabilization plans by effectively removing the Iraqi civil servants and military personnel that CENTCOM had intended to use for stabilization and reconstruction operations. The Sunni backlash to CPA Orders 1 and 2 was exacerbated by the seating of a new Shia-majority Iraqi governing council comprised largely of expatriates who were competitors for power against non-expatriate factions. The foreign terrorist and former regime element organizations that had only tenuous footholds in Iraq in April 2003 gradually gained traction as the coalition military forces failed to protect the population from crime, assassinations, and reprisal attacks, alienated Sunni parties and tribes, and appeared to enable the Kurdish parties to seize territories beyond the Green Line permanently. While CJTF-7 battled a mounting number of Sunni militant groups, intra-Shia rivalries exacerbated by Iranian-backed political parties and militias began to flare into violence. Principal among these intra-Shia battles was the power struggle between Abdul Aziz Al-Hakim's SCIRI and Badr militia on one side and Muqtada Sadr and his Jaish al-Mahdi on the other, with the latter becoming increasingly problematic for the coalition as the conflict intensified. CENTCOM and CJTF-7, however, were slow to respond to the Sadrist danger and, in their anxiousness to avoid opening a second front against Iraq's seemingly placid Shia population, decided to contain Sadr rather than confront him and his militia head-on, a decision that has had far-reaching consequences for the United States ever since. CJTF-7's relatively hands-off approach to division operations, combined with varying force composition and the unique environments and human terrain in each division's area of operations, led to a diverse application of both offensive and stability operations across the country. Divisions had great leeway to operate as they saw fit in their respective areas, with mixed results. Some were able to manage their diverse regions relatively effectively, while others essentially were left conducting continual movements to contact against unknown enemies on complex terrain. Some divisions were successful in organizing joint and interagency targeting mechanisms with special operations forces and humanitarian organizations that led to more precise operations against insurgents and more focused reconstruction efforts. Others benefited from the expanded use of the Commander's Emergency Response Program, or CERP, funds to rebuild local security forces, infrastructure, and governance structures, and to find innovative ways to keep reconcilable former Baathists on the payroll and out of the insurgency. The variation in the application of CJTF-7's rules of engagement, however, was not so helpful, as some of the coalition's more heavy-handed tactics began creating collateral damage and political fallout detrimental to the stabilization campaign. Considering the rules for engagement for Iraq sufficient, General John Abizade did not change them. He and Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez instead provided verbal guidance about avoiding mass sweeps of villages and treating those in their custody respectfully, but unit's interpretation of that guidance varied nearly as much as the physical and human geography of each area of operations. Meanwhile, the number of detainees in coalition custody continued to mount, and the Iraqi prisoner population, categorized deliberately as enemy combatants rather than prisoners of war, became a fertile recruiting ground for all insurgent groups in Iraq. The volume of detainees, combined with a lack of adequately trained interrogators and prison guards, contributed to a dysfunctional detention system countrywide, and the criminal abuses and deaths of Iraqi prisoners at the Abu Ghraib Theater internment facility, particularly in the fall of 2003. The revelations about the Abu Ghraib abuses would fuel the Iraqi insurgency for the remainder of the coalition military's time in Iraq and beyond. In retrospect, these worsening problems of insecurity, insurgency, and political instability were symptoms of two larger problems, state collapse and civil war. A great many of the issues that the coalition had to face in the second half of 2003 were the relatively predictable consequences of the collapse of the Iraqi state, which unfolded in patterns similar to other cases of state collapse, such as those the United States and its allies had previously encountered in Somalia, the Balkans, Haiti, and even Afghanistan. The behavior of the Iraqi population in 2003 reflected the unsettling disappearance of a centralized state that for four decades had become the dominant force in almost all aspects of Iraqi life, atomizing most other institutions and leaving no civil society buffer between the individual and the state. When the Baath collapsed and chaos ensued, nearly 30 million Iraqis began to revert to long-dormant sectarian, tribal, or ethnic identities in a quest for survival. Above all, however, the developments of 2003 indicated that, in invading Iraq, collapsing the Iraqi state, and leaving a power vacuum, the U.S.-led coalition had unleashed a civil war among the many Iraqi factions and created a maelstrom in which the regional powers were compelled to intervene in order to promote their proxies and expand or secure their interests. In hindsight… Many of the steps that CJTF-7 and the CPA took to try to snuff out the budding insurgency and terrorist groups were doomed to failure, or even counterproductive, in the absence of a larger program of political stabilization. Aggressive security operations to stop insurgents and terrorist groups against the backdrop of a vast power struggle in the country served in many cases only to drive the population toward extremist groups between both the Sunni and Shia communities. To some extent, These security operations were a red herring, distracting the coalition from the larger problems of a security vacuum for the population and a failure of governance, neither of which became the coalition's main focus until 2007. At the same time, the U.S. decision in late 2003 to move quickly toward Iraqi self-governance and an accelerated election timeline in the name of political stabilization would actually have the opposite effect. This only heightened the stakes in the violent struggle for power, inflamed divisions, and created a political process that only could be destabilizing in the midst of civil and regional war. These facts, however, would wait for years for the coalition to recognize and act on them. In the meantime, Iraqis and coalition together would descend into large-scale insurgency and pass through the fire of a brutal, sectarian civil war. End of Chapter 10 Conclusion From Invasion to Insurgency 2002-2003 to 2003. Read by Adam Cable Milwaukee, Wisconsin 2021